So we got Rachel Fulton on today, who uh, will be newly rolling out with producer Dan, the EliteFastPitch.tv site, which we've always had a lot of, of softball people on our Elite Baseball site, but I think having a voice of Rachel's and her experience on both ends of softball and baseball is just gonna, gonna kill that. So look, at, look for that coming out at the beginning of the year. But she is uh, replacing Travis today, who is on holiday vacation. I thought it was good. Rachel and I have very similar conversations that Travis and I have, and she is certainly a pea in the pod. And I think um, I knew we were going to hit it off from a professional standpoint the first day I, I met you, Rachel. And if you recall, we met in Northwest Indiana for a breakfast. It was good. Old, old school cafe. And we sat down and ordered... And I think we ordered literally three pounds of bacon. Yeah, the it was funny because it was like, I'm sitting there with these two like massive guys and I'm like this tiny little girl, right? And you guys are like, okay, Travis goes, I just want eggs, but I want them cooked as fast as possible. What's the fastest way you can cook eggs? And the lady's like, I think sunny side up. And he goes, great, I'll have like six eggs. And she's like, okay. And then you ordered yours. And then you guys were like, and we just want like, a lot of like what's the maximum amount of bacon we're allowed to order in one sitting and I'm just sitting here like these guys are awesome this is awesome this is gonna go so well they don't even know this is like gonna go so well so it was pretty funny um because I had already talked to Travis but I hadn't met you guys in person yet so that was that was an experience yeah and another one that, that you and I share in common we've done this a couple of times of talking the game and learning a lot from it oftentimes like pulling chairs out from a restaurant or a bar. Or I, I remember a day after doing um, a training session on movement assessments that you and I did. I was like, hey, why don't you just stop by? Let's, let's talk shop a little bit. And my house is right down the street facility. We just sat out on a nice fall day and you drank some bourbon. And I had some rum for about two hours, I believe. It's like, yeah, we have very similar tastes. But one of the things I like talking with you from a hitting standpoint, just how creative you are. So one of the topics I want to bring up today are external constraints and internal and external cues. But I'm going to start today with something I think you could really touch on with your experience. You've said yourself this quote, forever the game of fast pitch has been trying to figure out the dilemma of the rise ball. And now that we're seeing in professional baseball and filtering down even to uh, lower levels where spin rates are getting higher and higher due to advanced ability to um, train with technology as well as, you know, pitch design and those kind of go hand in hand. Baseball is trying to fight right now the high spin rate, high velocity, forcing fastball at the top of the zone. Can you explain just the crossover and carryover that you've been able to bring to a baseball stance from what you learned in the fast pitch game? Yeah, um, that's actually like something that I joke about a lot in my cage is, you know, I have a lot of, especially Cubs fans that come into the cage and a lot of dads. And so they're big baseball guys. They watch a lot of baseball. Um, Travis has put this very well. It's it, softball is kind of a way for dads to connect with their daughters because they watch a lot of baseball. I think it's really interesting, but they come in and they're like pissed off, right? This year, 2020, everybody's pissed off. Cubs strike out too much. They would swing and miss the top of the zone too much and all this stuff. And, you know, we talk about it a lot. And the joke is like baseball is trying to catch up to that high fastball. And I'm like, in softball, we've been doing this crap for years. Like this is like a, a thing that we've had to, to deal with for forever. You know, I had to hit off against Monica Abbott, who's got like 
you know, through 78 miles per hour at the top of the zone all the time. Like you just like, that's just stuff that we've had to deal with both on the men's fast pitch side and the female fast pitch side. And so if you, if you look at the data, like Rapsodo pitch data, the balls at the top of the zone, like from the elite guys, like Scherzer, Verlander, those guys and the elite softball pitchers that throw actually really good rise balls with, with higher spin rates, they, the ball behaves pretty much very similar in the last 15 feet. So you're really just like swinging at a pitch that's moving in the exact same direction, which is interesting when you think about, you know, the whole baseball versus softball swing debate that loves to go around the internet. I don't know why it's still a thing, but it's still a thing. And so, you know, when we, when you look at how to hit that, it becomes very like difficult to explain to someone who's been in baseball for forever where, you know, well, the pitch comes from up here, they're throwing downhill and they're throwing lower than where it started to understand, but it appears like it's going up because it's just falling less rapidly. And I'm like, yes, it's just like we throw a pitch from down at our hip. It ends up crossing us at the chest. So it looks like everything they throw is going up. Neither of those are true, right? Like both of those are, it's always somewhere in the middle, right? The Magnus effect is going to flatten that pitch out. And then in softball, everything is thrown with top spin, or if you throw it with backspin, it doesn't really have a ton of high spin rate. So it's going to fall still with gravity. It's just going to fall less fast. So it's basically the same thing. The rise ball in softball behaves like the four seam fastball in baseball where the Magnus effect just doesn't allow the ball to drop as much from gravity. Yes. But in softball, the ball indeed is still dropping you're saying yes so it's it's spinning backwards so it's trying to fight gravity but because we're throwing from underneath the ball and our wrist doesn't necessarily work super fast that way we're just basically it's falling less fast so they basically behave you know it falls i think in the last 15 feet someone is going to check me on this on the internet because the only people that are going to watch our podcast are going to be super nerds. So someone's going to check us on this. Um, I think it falls between like two and five degrees, which is what a high fastball falls. So like it fights the natural arc of gravity and same thing in baseball. So there's so, truly no such thing as a rising fastball. You hear that, you hear that thrown around a lot. I mean, in, in, in people will argue with you. It's perception. Left. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like the ball started low, it ended up higher and I saw it rise because it looked like it was rising. Well, it just, my, my encyclopedia that tells me everything falls in an, a natural arc. And then this one doesn't, it falls in a, a, an arc that's longer. So it stays higher fat, you know, for longer, it appears like it's going up. So yeah, everyone will fight you till they're blue in the face, but it's like the data doesn't lie. Like you can look at it. Um, I'm sure there's some sort of like male, fast pitch pitcher out there that can actually throw like a ball that actually goes up like with high enough spin rate. Yeah. Velocity and just their hands are bigger and they can manipulate the ball a little bit better. So. Well, I'm going to say, I'm going to say something else here that I think is worth noting because no matter how for granted that we take this, there's just a bunch of the population does not, you're saying the baseball and softball swing are not different. No, they're not just how, where you pick up the ball is different. That's it. Okay. Well, before I get into the timing of that, and then I have some comments about the old um, Barry Bonds, Albert Pujols videos where they were going against Jenny Finch. I have some comments on that, but uh, tell me about the way you swung the bat. The, the, the negative connotation that I've had, and I don't teach a ton of girls, but the ones that I have are, are really elite. 
And the knock that I get when they go back to their softball coaches is they say, why are you going to Stone? He's teaching you to swing like a baseball player. And I said, no, I'm teaching you to swing like an athlete. You want to comment on that? Because I know you as a player, yeah. when, you, when you kind of backtrack on, on your own playing days, and you can touch on this too, in your swing, it sounds like you got that comment a lot too. However, you mashed. Yeah. I, I mean, I, so I grew up watching baseball. Like I'm a baseball fan. I used to tell everybody, like, I love baseball was my first love. Softball didn't come until way later. I didn't start playing softball until I was 14. And so the hitters that I always emulated were like, I love Ken Griffey Jr. And I love Jim Tomey. Those were like my two favorite hitters to watch. And it's funny because their swings are not very similar, right? They're, they're different. They're kind of different guys, but they mash. But I like the, you know, I'm a lefty. And that was just, those were two guys that I like to watch. And so when I started playing softball, like, first of all, let me backtrack even more. When I played baseball, I sucked. I was terrible. I was an awful, awful baseball player. I was a good defensive player. I had a really good arm. I could, I was a good athlete. I've always been a good athlete, but like basketball was my priority as a kid. So I didn't devote any time to getting better at baseball. So it was terrible. So then I quit. I just stopped playing baseball at 12 after majors. I, I went over the season and I was like, screw this. I'm not playing this anymore. I just focused on basketball. When I started playing softball, I, I like remember the very first game that I ever played. Right. And they gave me like the extra, I heard you talking on one of the podcasts, you got new elite gear. And usually it's like the double XLs. That's the only thing that's left over. Um, so they gave me like the double XL Jersey that I'm like swimming in. Right. And I'm like, you know, they, they're, they're like, okay, well, what position do you play in, in softball and, or in baseball? And I'm like, well, I usually play like shortstop. And I'm like, well, we're going to put you at third base. It's not that much different. I'm like, okay. So I go take my position at third base and I'm standing behind, behind the third base. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm playing third base. And they're like, uh, you got to scoot up. And I'm like, well, how far? And they're like, well, in front of the bag. I'm like, what the hell are you playing in front of the bag for? I'm like, well, what if somebody bunts or what if somebody slaps? And I'm like, why, why would they do? I don't understand. Like, why would anybody do that? And so, cause even in, when I played baseball, I did play in like a high level baseball league. Like we have people that ended up being major leaguers that played in that league. So like kids mashed. So I didn't like, there was no like bunting or slap. And then I remember the first time I saw a girl slap and I was like, what the hell is this girl doing? Like, is she like, does she, is this her first game ever? Like, I have no idea what this girl's doing. And so first ball gets hit to me. I'm playing close. I'm peeing down my leg because I'm like, if someone hits it down my throat, I'm going to die. Right. So this girl hits a chopper to my left. I field the ball and I throw on the run like wrong footed because I was a good athlete and everyone just erupts and they're like, whoa, that was an awesome play. And I'm just like, it was a ground ball. I'm like, okay, like whatever. So instantly I knew like, okay, they do things a little bit differently here. And then it started to frustrate me because then I started to watch how other people were being coached and how, especially when they were hitting is everything was just about like contact and like, you know, you got to put the ball in play and use your speed. And I'm like, dude, I'm not fast. Like, that's not going to work for me. So I just basically, and you know me well enough at this point to know, like, I'm going to just do my own thing anyway. And so I just was like, um, I'm going to try to hit the ball over the fence because that just seems more fun. And so when I started to play, I was a really good contact hitter, but no one had ever taught me how to hit for power. I never played for a coach that knew how to teach me how to hit for power. And then I got like a private hitting coach. And he really kind of like unlocked a few things about like ground force and stuff. He's a very elite level hitting coach. His name is Jerry Morrow. He was a college coach for a few years and he just like let me go. And once that started to happen and once I hit my first home run, I was like addicted to it. And that's all I ever wanted to do was just hit home runs. And that's, I mean, I hit a lot of them 
And so it was a lot of fun for me to like literally just go up there and know that like if they put a ball anywhere close, I was going to hit it as far as I possibly could. And the, the unique part about my journey is once that started, I never had anybody tell me that was wrong. So that's that allowed me to be that player. And I never really got, I never really played for coaches that were like micromanagers from that point on. So a lot of the creativity and the development that I bring into coaching now is stuff that like I literally learned on my own through my feels and through my processes. So it's, it's an interesting thing to think about like how many hitters I, I think when left to their own devices, hitters are going to be for the most part. Okay. If they just watch and they, they figure stuff out and we screw them up a lot more than we if help them get if they're of course, if they're athletic, I agree with you. So, Which is why, yeah. why I go back to these young kids. And of course we have a ton of young kids that still come into our Academy, but the biggest piece of advice that I tell parents of the, the seven to nine year olds is I would prefer that they work on building themselves as a better athlete. And a lot of what we do in there is some physical training. Like if you're, you've heard me say this a number of times, so I'll just briefly touch on it. But if your scaps or core aren't strong enough to really allow you to unlock, as your word, this movement, you're just not going to be able to do it. So there's some things in addition to swinging a baseball bat that are going to make you better at swinging a baseball bat. And I think certainly my age group, I'm quite a bit older than you. We did that on the monkey bars. You know, if we did that, through wrestling, we did that climbing or trying to walk on our hands, um, things like that, that will build athleticism through just natural human movement of playing outside. Yep. My next question before we get into some of those constraints is how do you, how do you think timing to me, and this surprises people. I, I actually asked this in the interview process in, of different places that I've worked. I was like, if you had to rate your top five things that make a good hitter, and I kind of throw this out there as a, a trick question because I'm known as a, a mechanical guy. I said, out of these five things, tell me how you would rank them in order of importance from top to bottom. And I'll put them in my order, timing, approach, pitch selection, pitch recognition, pitch selection, and last would be mechanics. So timing to me is the most important and critical element to hitting. You could have a subpar swing and have really good timing and excel. On the other hand, you could have a swing that looks like it belongs in a I was going to say a Charlie Lau textbook, but insert your favorite hitting coach of today textbook. And if you have good timing, it doesn't matter. It looks really pretty, but it doesn't play. So tell me how the timing of the softball delivery you feel like differs from the baseball one. Is it any well, harder? Yeah. So I don't think it's any harder. I actually think it's easier. So I grew up and my brother and I used to have this debate every freaking time we would get together and it was, which is harder, softball or baseball? And I used to always say softball's harder. And then I'd show him that Jenny Finch video, striking out Albert Pujols and be like, see, it's harder. And he's like, yeah, but that's, there's no, Randy Johnson's not throwing to a girl and making her look silly either. And I'm like, that's true, but I'm not going to tell him that, right? So um, I think it's easier. And because once the circle starts, it's basically the same. Whereas, and like, once you kind of push off the mound, it's basically the same. Whereas in baseball, you can stall at the top. You can go Johnny Cueto. You can have slide step. You can do like all these kinds of different deliveries. You can drop your arm angles. We throw out of the same slot every single time. And so, you know, you can manipulate your body. Like girls will step like kind of across their body to throw a, a curveball on the other side of the plate, or they'll step open to throw a screwball. But at that point, it's like, basically it's really obvious and, in most cases, the pitches don't move all that much like they do in baseball. So 
I actually think it's a little bit easier to time up a pitcher because once their takeoff happens, like once that front foot goes up, it's basically identical. Whereas in baseball, even the guys that come down the mound, like, you know, out of their leg kick, they can vary that speed quite a bit. And I think the length of their levers matters too. You know, if you have a longer lever guy, it's going to oftentimes take longer to come out of their hand. So I think you have this like difference in timing. Um, and that's something that like, admittedly, and we talked about this on our own interview process, because for everybody watching, Justin is my boss. So we talked about this on our interview process, like that's going to be something that I'm going to have to learn over the next year under fire is like how to teach hitters how to get on time with different types of deliveries, because it is, it's something that we just don't deal with in softball. Yeah, that's, that's for certain. And timing is such an innate quality. It's really hard to teach um, in the, more times than not, every hitting coach, including myself, will go to the same thing. You, oftentimes, you need to start sooner to be able to yeah. slow down. However, one thing that we find consistent in hitters that are on time is their center of mass, so we'll just call that their belly button, is beginning to gain ground no later than pitch release. Any later than that, you've lost time. You're now rushing. And I don't know the answer for this, and tell, tell it to me. When is that for softball? So at baseball, release is the latest that we can be gaining ground with our belly button. And there's outliers, but that's standard. When is that for softball, in your opinion? I would say probably top of the circle on their way down. Okay. Um, and if it's, I mean, if you got a pitcher that's like just throwing like, you know, just poo up there that's not throwing hard, obviously that can be later. But for the most part, with a with an elite level pitcher, let's say, it's usually when they're on their way down, I'm headed on my way forward. And just depending on the speed and the tempo of your timing, I think – um, timing to me, and this is something that Dan Puente has taught me a lot about over the last year. And I've gotten uh, to be super fortunate and work. I, I live close to Chicago, so I can drive to Chicago and work with pro guys around pro coaches three times a week. And it's been awesome. And so Puente and I've had a lot of conversations about tempo and I'm like, okay, so explain to me what you mean about tempo. And, you know, everybody's swing has a natural tempo to it, right? Like everybody's got their own internal metronome. Like some people, like load and go really fast. And some people like to take a long time. And so it's, there's no right answer, but you have to be married to your tempo and you have to be able to like stay in your tempo, no matter what the tempo of the pitcher is. And when, when like in softball, it's really easy. You're going to see a very, a lot of similar tempos because the pitch delivery is very identical. Right. But in baseball, you're going to see a ton of different tempos, right? You're going to see some guys with high leg kicks that hang out in the air for a long time, like Justin Turner, or you're going to see guys with leg kicks that go a little bit quicker, like Trout, or you're going to see guys that are like, you know, Yelich just really spread out and just like no leg kick at all. And you're going to see all these varying different styles, which you do see in softball too, you're starting to, because people are starting to understand that it doesn't all have to look identical, but the variation of the tempos is way bigger in baseball. And so trying to, to find guys to understand what their tempo is, is a challenge. And so, you know, like since talking to him, I've tried to, you know, come up with all these different drills because I'm still a facility coach at heart where you just like try, try a bunch of, you know, cool stuff on a bunch of players. Um, it, trying to find drills to challenge people's tempo to make sure that they keep their natural tempo. So that way you can control the go of your center of mass or your belly button or whatever. Because if you're, if you get rushed and all of a sudden your tempo gets rushed, 
your swing is just basically going to be one giant chain of compensating moves because you don't have enough space. Or if you're too early, your swing is going to be a, a, a giant chain of compensating moves out in front and you're just trying to stay in the zone longer, but you're not going to produce a ton of speed. So trying to under, have guys understand their tempo to me is something that I've really learned over the last year. And I really think that it does, like I'm seeing a huge, like I'm seeing results by just working on ha having guys understand their tempo. I get people to ask us that question sometimes, Rachel's like, how do you figure this stuff out? What research, what, and we go back to, to me, I want to find the answer to everything being objective as possible. So to give you an example of how interested I was in timing and you brought up Puente's name, this is before I was a consultant for the Cubs. So probably six years ago, if not seven, I went to an entire Phillies Cubs series, Puente and I. I filmed every pitch of the game with a high-speed video camera with the pitcher and the hitter in frame. Puente marked down every pitch and charted it. What was the pitch? What was the count? What was the outcome? And then I went back and matched them up. And what I was looking for was when the player started his unique loading mechanism, where was, what was the pitcher doing? Where was he at? And that would mark like when center of mass started to gain ground, when front foot started to come down and launch. This is every swing of a three-game series. This took me like five months to complete. And that was the one thing in common that no matter what style of loading mechanism there was, the one consistent trait was that hitters on time were gaining ground at the very latest pitch release. And that, that may, that's not earth-shattering. It's like, why the hell did you spend five months doing that? It's because everybody wants to know, when do I need to get started? And there's no one answer for that. Because it's dependent on what you just said, the size of my loading mechanism and the comfort of my tempo within that loading mechanism. If I'm gaining ground at pitch release, I need to rewind from there and figure out yes. how long does my comfortable load with tempo take to complete. Yeah. Now, going back to your, your Jenny Finch, Albert Pujols, I have a comment on that. Not that Jenny Finch isn't really, really good and she doesn't have the merit to strike out Albert Pujols with movement or change of speed. I'm sure she does. I'm sure that would be a competitive scenario all the time. They're both, at the time, the best of what they did. But I think Jenny Finch did something different. I think she fooled Albert Pujols' brain. Knowing that baseball players, and, and take front toss out of this because it's not the same as Jenny Finch's speed or movement, but baseball players are used to seeing in a competitive environment the pitch coming from overhand most of the time. But regardless of the angle that the pitch is coming out of, they have some sort of background and knowledge base. I always call that the file size in your brain of, I've seen this before. My brain knows where to meet the ball bat collision in space, knowing I'm going to have to make that decision with the ball about halfway there. Seeing somebody at the caliber of Jenny Finch and not a high school pitcher, that one, she throws really fast, so reaction time is going to be limited, similar to a major league baseball, really good fastball. But to see a ball come out of that arm slot with that motion and then have different spin and movement than what you're going to see on a baseball pitch, what I feel like she did was gave them an instance of something that their brain has never seen where with anyone, there's a learning curve there. Your brain needs to figure it out over the course of time. And that would be done easier in a slower to faster environment. But you throw the most elite pitcher in the game at them right there. It's not that Albert Pujols couldn't hit her. It's Albert Pujols' brain just went, what the fuck was that? Pretty much. Yeah, I call it the, the hitting encyclopedia. Like, we all have this encyclopedia we're building in our brain. And, like, as you get older, it gets thicker. 
right? And so you have this in this this thick encyclopedia that Albert Pujols has because he's seen basically everything at this point. And both of them were in their prime in this video, yeah. which was probably one of the coolest parts about it. And so you, he has this encyclopedia that's like, you know, seven inches thick. And Finch is like throwing a pitch that came out of this stack over here that he has no freaking clue. Like he's never seen a pitch move uphill like that, right? What appears to move uphill like that. He's never seen a pitch come out of the arm slot that she's thrown. And she's throwing from 43 feet away. So there's also like a distance difference too, right? Like, and Finch is tall. Like she was my teammate. I have one of my favorite pictures ever is my mom took it. And it's, I'm at a meeting on the mound and I'm five foot four and Finch is six foot one. And so we're just sitting there and I'm like this talking to her and she's like this, just looking down at me. And it's really funny. Like, it's like a funny picture, but she's tall. So she's going to gain a ton of ground to get clo as close to him as possible. He probably felt like that pitch was being released from like as far away as I am from the camera. And so, yeah, there's no, he has no pre-predictive qualities in his brain built up because it, it's not in his encyclopedia whatsoever. So it wouldn't matter. You give him enough at bats though. I'm sure he would be fine. You when know, are we going to figure out the brain's power in hitting? Because we, to me, we like, we know we're not even scratching the surface. We know yeah. next to nothing. And so much more is being placed on the ocular side, which I agree with. But again, we know next to nothing. Like, is that going to be the next breakthrough in your opinion? Yeah, I get that question a lot. Actually, um, when I do like, you know, just interviews and stuff is like, okay, so we have all this new age tech and all this everything. So what's next? Like, what can we even do next? And I'm like, if you figure out how the brain works, it's going to make millions of dollars, right? Because that's what we're trying to figure out. We're trying to figure out how to make faster decisions. And you know, as well as I do, like some of the stuff that we have access to, we're trying to quantify the value of making a decision, a good decision and a bad decision, right? But we still don't know how those decisions are made. Yeah. And so, you know, to me, the only way you can do it is I always go back to this quote that Franz Bosch had, and it says, you don't learn a movement by practicing it over and over and over again. You learn the difference between two movements. And I will always remember that because, so let's say you want to learn how to hit a hundred mile per hour fastball at the top of the zone, which is extremely difficult, but you want to do that. Well, we might need to train at 105 at the top of the zone. And we also might need to train at 90 at the top of the zone and let your brain figure out where the middle is, right? Because if you, if you give yourself that variability training, your brain, when it gets stretched, is always going to land somewhere in the middle. And that middle is going to feel easier and it's going to feel more repeatable. And so I always think that like when I'm training kids and this is where like a lot of the creativity comes in. Like I, I literally think of that quote, like once a day, once a week is like, if we're, if we're training our kids to hit, you know, curveballs, right? Like 12 to six hammers. We need to like, I throw blitz balls at my hitters because they move more. Right. So let's show them the most extreme version of that movement. And then let's show them like the dumpiest, crappiest hanging curveball of all time and just let them go. Right. And then their brain is going to, predict everything in the middle and like so to me I don't really know what the part of the brain is that's making those decisions but I do know that it's trainable I do know that it's trainable and I do know that you can see results and the game will slow down for the hitters if you train at the extremes because I think like if you you know we, we've done it right we've we've done it with uh you know some of our pro guys I was like hey here's 75 miles per hour from 40 feet away let's see what you can do with it which is like unrealistic. Like no one's ever going to throw 110, 12 miles per hour, at least not in our lifetime. And so why are we training it there? Well, because when they see 95, 95 is going to feel like 
nothing. It's going to feel like little league again. And they're just going to rake. Right. So you, you have to do those things, but it, I know it's trainable, but I don't know what part of the brain is responsible for those kinds of things. And especially when it comes to like pitch recognition and shape, seeing shapes, the earlier you can see them, you know, like I used to have conversations with my, with my teammates and they'd be like, you know, there was this girl that pitched, her name was Lisa Norris. She pitched at uh, university of North Carolina. She was awesome. She had the most disgusting changeup ever. And unless you were sitting on it, you could not hit it. And so, you know, I'm, I've, I've gone my career of like, if I sit on it, I can hit it. But if I don't know it's coming, she gets me with it every single time. And so it's like 50, 50, am I going to sit on the, cur- the change up today or am I not? And so after three, four years of facing her, I, I thought the last year, I'm like, I think I finally figured it out. And they're like, well, what do you, you figured out Norris's changeup? How the hell did you do that? And I'm like, okay, watch this. I'm like, just hear me out. I said, watch her for the rest of the game. I said, when she is about, when she's on her way down, if she like really like digs in with her face, like she grimaces really hard, she's throwing something hard. But if her face is completely relaxed, she's going to throw a change up. They're like, Folden, how the hell am I supposed to watch her damn face when I'm trying to hit the pitch? I'm like, hey, dude, you got, you got no other choice. You can go up there and just like flip a coin or you could just try it and maybe it'll work. And so, but it was like funny. And they're like, how the hell did you do that? And the answer is, I have no freaking clue, but I figured it out. And it was the truth. And when you would watch a game, she would do it. And so like, I would just zone in on her face. Like, could you imagine going up to bat and you're like, I'm not even watching the ball. I'm just looking at your face. And I'm hoping that at the last minute, if I see you grimace, I can just speed up and like foul a ball off. And then hopefully get the change up that I've been waiting for, for two games, you know? And so it's just, it, it was, it's an interesting thing how the brain works, but I could rely on that because I had seen her so many times that I knew what her delivery looked like. I knew what her spin looked like. I feel I felt like I could handle everything else that I could literally just like, okay, let's see what her face is going to do and, and do that. But that's, that's not something you can teach a 10 year old with no encyclopedia, right? Like that's, that's not something you can do, but once you get to a certain level, you can start to look for that kind of stuff. And the brain is, you're right. Like we haven't even scratched the surface. I I don't even think people understand how these decisions get made, but I think a lot of it is given away in the delivery that we just don't really understand yet. And I I, think a lot of the, the ocular stuff is going to prove that. I I think it's the medical community in general, not just baseball people. I think we know so little about the brain and still the human body, which just mystifies me in the age of medicine, technology, and, and just where we are. But yeah, that, that's incredible. I'm going to shift the focus now to, to player development. Okay. And this is going to kind of tie in again to the, the way you creatively train players. And I'll say I've, I'm not near as creative as you in the, in the way I train, but there has certainly been a number of drills over the years I've literally made up on the fly in the cage because I've watched the player move and it's not going the way I want them to. And I know I'm going to try this just to get the, this outcome, right? So mm-hmm. there's two schools of thought on player development. There's one, and you don't have to call it new or old because it probably still exists today, but there's one that, that we would just call Darwinism. It's we're going to pretty much do the same thing with every player or let them choose just how they want to go about their training. I'm going to put a T down. I'm going to tell you to swing down and hit a line drive to the back of the screen. And through Darwinism, if you have a hundred prospects, 10 of them are going to be competitive enough, have good enough bat to ball skills, and, and just the mental aspect of going through a professional season to climb the ladder. Or maybe the, 
out-athlete the game at that level too. That's certainly a part of it. So we take those 100 players and we have 10 that are able to make it through. My philosophy on player development is find where these players lack from being the, in those 10. And let's try to increase that number to 30 or 40 by giving them maybe one piece on the approach, mental, physical strength, or mechanic side that allows them just to keep trekking. Now you have competition within those 30 or 40, and there's where your Darwinism gets even better in taking people to the top. Now that's an ideal world. I think within that, you have to be creative. And what, the way my approach in teaching hitting is I want to give the player as little as I possibly can to get them to do what I need them to do. Do they need to have the biomechanical knowledge that I have on that? Absolutely not. Do they need to know why I'm asking them to do? Not even necessarily. I hope that they ask that question. But when you come up with some of these drills, and I'll let you throw a couple out of examples too, instead of shunning it and saying that looks really goofy. And in my experience, professional players don't give a shit if something looks goofy or not. They'll try it. They'll, they'll give you feedback on how it feels. They, they say, yeah, I don't know if that works for me. And I always try to give probably the same as you, I'm going to give you five drills that all get to the same outcome. You tell me which two or three work for you and we'll continue to do those. Yep. But you know, it's creativity can get shunned if, if people don't like it, don't understand it, whatever. That, that's the nature of social media these days. Um, but, but tell me where that creative creativity stems from, kind of the things that you've done on the fly that you might think are crazy or you've taken out of context would look crazy, but end up being really effective. Uh, I'm, I'm not afraid to look like an idiot in the cage. I'm also not afraid to tell kids like, hey, listen, we're going to try something really freaking weird today and let's go. Um, I think you, a, once you build a rapport with a player where they trust you, you can do anything you want. You're right. Players don't care, but they do have to trust you first. Right? Like I can't, I can't show up to spring training having just been hired two months prior and be like, bring in all the crazy shit. Like let's do all the crazy. Like I can't do that. Right. You got to build a trust with a player and then show them what you're doing. Um, I think, probably the the weirdest ones that we've done um there's like lately i've been bringing a chuck it into the cage to understand path and it's replaced our t-work for a lot of our a lot of my hitters both girls and boys doesn't matter um i i'm like trying to move away from t-work as much as possible just because like i don't know it it, it always like stuck with me that like in sports where they have to do something like really really fast and really react a lot like hockey goalies don't train by catching balls off a tee right like catchers don't train by catching a ball off a tee um tennis players don't learn how to return serves by hitting a ball off a tee right everything is in space and so i'm trying to get away from hitting off the tee a lot but there is like a mechanical aspect where you have to like you know like you were talking about your five, your five things that you do um, that, that you think in your order of importance, timing, approach, and pitch recognition are top three, and then pitch selection, and then mechanics. You're completely right. I would not put those in any different order, but I would train them in the reverse order. I would train them with like, you know, first your mechanics, then your pitch selection, then your pitch recognition, then your approach, because your approach has to match everything. And then I would maybe put timing would you know, be sprinkled in there somewhere. Um, but yeah, like 
the, the chuck it's a good one. Um, another one that I really, I love variability training. I just, I'm about to, uh, I already recorded it, but I'm about to give a presentation on variability training to create adaptation in hitters, like hitters that can hit multiple pitches um, and, and be able to call upon multiple types of swings to produce, you know, bar- to produce more barrels. Um, and one of my favorite things to do is like, I, like I use a bat donut more than probably anybody else. Like I love a bat donut cause it's a mid weight. So it, you, you still swing it pretty easily. It's not like the weights all shoved at the end of the bat. It's in the middle of the barrel. You still have the barrel is exposed so you can hit with it on there. And I love to do like, you know, two swings with the donut, two swings off of it at high velocity. And then same thing, two, two swings, you know, take the donut off, give them a, a short bat, give them a light bat, give them a fungo, right? Something light. And then, so like overload and underload training, I think is huge when it comes to producing adaptation. And then another thing that I love to do, and I do it probably like at least weekly with somebody is I, I love to throw from angles. Like I love to, to train path, but I like to do it like implicitly. And it's very simple. Like you were talking about internal and ex- external cues. It's very simple for a hitter to figure out what they're doing. If you give them a clear cut goal. So for example, if I'm throwing like angle toss, like I'm a left-handed hitter. So if I'm throwing angle toss from behind me, from the second base side, you know, second baseman side, and I'm like, Hey, listen, I'm going to throw a ball in. I want you to see how many balls you can hit over the shortstop's head. Very clear, distinct goal. I'm not telling them how to do it. I'm just letting them go and letting them figure it out. And all of a sudden they start to groove a swing that has good path to do that. Right. And then, you know, you throw from the middle and all of a sudden it just seems like super easy for them to just like have better path. So I like to do a lot of drills where um, it's, it's very much like a figure it out type model where you just, if the drill is designed correctly, you don't have to over cue, right? If you have a good drill where I can sit there and you'll know, you know, right away when you make up these, these drills in the cage, you're like, that's a good drill. Or you'll make it up and you're like, I'm never going to do that drill again, but I'm not going to tell them that because yeah, that was like, just, because one, yes, one correct, will correct. be more effective for one player than the other. Correct. Yeah. With that specific player, but I'm not going to tell them that it's just like, all right, we're going to scrap that drill and move on to something else. So yeah, like drills that I've made up on the spot. Um, let me see what, if, I, if I've made anything up on the spot lately, um, the, like one of our pro guys, he likes to hit the plyo balls. And so throwing angle toss with plyo balls, I'd never done that before. And just to see, I didn't know what would, I didn't know what would happen if it would change the ball flight at all, because there's sand in it and, you know, it's coming in a different angle and it seems to be working and he really likes it. So we're going to keep that in his routine, you know? So, I mean, that, that happens all the time. And I think that's where the feel of coaching comes in. We hear that a lot. Like this, you know, this person has a lot of knowledge, but plus or minus feel and that can be you know, is inherently important as anything. Like your relationship you build with the player, but coaching feel, like when to insert yourself, when to come in hot, when to back off. And I think of that too, of identifying how players react. And you have to figure this out as a coach to internal and external cues. And I think back to the professional players that I've had for the longest amount of times. And sometimes they come in back to back. One of them is like the deepest internal cue guy that I've ever worked with which is kind of how my mind operates. So like, we'll get deep into the weeds on stuff, but I couldn't do that to most players. Uh, talk to him or talk to other players the way I talked to him. It just wouldn't work. They'd be confused as hell and never want to see me again. And the other guy, I can't use any internal cues with, but he re- he's really, really good at external cues. If I say, hit a ball here 
and I might throw him an inside pitch and tell him to hit a ball to the right center field corner. He'll put it there three out of five times. And it's just getting his body to do what I needed to do and kind of tricking him into doing it. But I think there's like, and that takes time to figure out. Um, You need time with your athletes. But I think there's real power into going back to, we can't coach everybody the same way. That's where the power of coaching comes in. It's really people skills, Rachel, which you're so good at. It's how quickly can I, can I figure out how this person clicks and operates so I can give them a way quickly, hopefully, to uh, speed up the learning, learning process for them, get them to where they want to go. Yep. Anything to touch on on that? Uh, I, I, I go back to something I read. I, think, I don't remember who said, I think it was Lou Holtz maybe, but it was like, you got to treat everybody fairly, but you don't treat everybody the same. So you have to give them the same set of like, you know, if I'm give, if I'm working with this guy for one hour, I'm going to give him the same focus that I give this next guy for one hour, right? Whether their skill sets are the same, completely different, ceilings are different, doesn't matter. I'm going to give you my full attention for one hour. So I'm treating you fairly, but I'm also going to treat you very differently when you get in there because you're going to need this, this set of cues. You're going to need this thing to get your, your body to do what it needs to do. And you're going to need this set of cues to get you to produce the results that you want to produce. And it's so, it's so true. Like I probably, I had someone come in um, on Monday actually and watch, like I gave like five or six lessons in a row while he was there. A good coaching friend of mine, his daughter goes to Washington, great softball player. I mean like phenomenal softball player. And uh, he's like, can I just stay and watch your lessons? I'm like, yeah. So I probably worked with five or six players and I probably did five or six completely different things. And this dude was probably like, like thought I was crazy, right? Like, okay, but like you just said this with this player and now you're saying something completely contradictory with this player. You know, like there are hitters where I have to like put a T as high as it would go and tell them, listen, I'm going to put a, I put a PVC pipe lane out here 12 feet away and you have to make the ball hit the ground before it hits that PVC pipe, which if they go to their team and they're like, this is what Rachel's making me do. I'm now the swing down coach that's like ostracized, right? And then I have kids where I'm putting the T as low as it'll go. And I'm like, I need you to hit it as high as you can hit it. And now I'm the launch angle coach. So now I'm going to be, you know, whatever. So it just depends on what circle you're in. No, isn't everybody? (laughs) Every, every ball has a launch angle. You don't say that in your lesson every time? So I thought it was funny. I had, this is a really good story. I love to tell this story. So I have a player, plays for a high level travel organization. And they have like, this they train at this cage in Illinois somewhere that's got like super old school coaches and that have taught things the same way for 25 years those kind of coaches right and so they're like oh Rachel's just teaching that launch angle stuff so I asked her I was like do you even know what a launch angle is and this girl's been coming to me for like six plus years okay and I go do you even know what a launch angle is and we have a hit tracks like we have a hit tracks it's on the screen every single time and she goes and she goes, isn't that the angle like the bat's moving when it hits the ball? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> and she goes, well, what is it? And I'm like, it's actually the angle of the ball. And I said, so I don't know how you produce a launch angle swing. And I said, but you didn't even know what it was. I said, why don't you go tell them like, I had no idea what the hell a launch angle was. So it's funny, like I get accused of it and which is fine. Like, I don't care, but um, yeah, she's just teaching you all that launch angle stuff. Oh, really? Well, what's a launch angle? I don't know. She had no, she had no clue what a launch angle was. It was pretty funny. Because I literally just don't use it. Yeah. That way before too, where I'll tell a player, like, I'm going to tell you something that I want you to do. However, this is not really what is happening. Just because I don't want them to go and say, he just yes. told you what? So there's this instance where I had uh, 
a player from the White Sox come in before I was working with the Cubs. It was only the second time I'd seen him. And he was a steep guy that would get continuously downhill. So balls at the bottom of the zone, he was hitting a lot of ground balls and choppers. And he wanted to learn, how do I more consistently get the ball on a line? Well, the player before him was a barrel dumper, another pro guy. And with him, I was doing what you said, Rachel. I was like, we got to get on top of these things. I want you to hit balls at my shins as I'm throwing you batting practice. And the White Sox player came in. I said, I need you to go. Can you go over there and warm up? The only thing I was trying to do was get him out of there because I didn't want him to see what I was working on with this player and think that that was okay for him to do. Because for him, I put the machine mid-shin, and I said, I want you to consistently hit line or fly balls as high as you can over the center fielder's head. It's like, I want these to go to the wall. I want you to hit them as high as you can from mid-shin. And eventually, gave him no more instruction than that at that point. Now, we worked some feels in the cage and did some movement. But off the machine, it was, I'm giving you this external cue, and he's an athlete, figure out a way to get it done. And first 10, 12 were all ground balls, and he started to figure out, oh, I got to turn my torso like this for a ball in order to get it in the air. So that's where the coaching feel of you got to figure out what your player needs, and you might say two completely opposite things, uh, but also that, that feel going into creativity of saying some really wacky shit at times that are often extremes to get your players to meet in the middle. Right. But if you've got like, you know, extreme barrel dump and, and this is where like data comes, you know, the tech and the data plays a role in it too. Like if I can show this player, like if I have a blast sensor on and I can show this player, like this is how underplaying you are. So we're going to train you like literally in the extreme opposite direction. And hopefully you land somewhere within this range. And I, and, but you have to like, tell them, you're like, listen, when you go to practice and you do this shit and your coach asks you, you're like, coach, this is not for anybody else. This is just for me because I'm so extreme this way. So I think a lot of it too is like, especially with the younger players, maybe not with like the older pro guys because it's just generationally different. But like, I know that when I coach the average 14 or 15 year old, like they're going to go on Twitter and they have one of these and they're going to have access to the exact same stuff that I have access to. And they're going to call me on my bullshit. And they will. I get I get players that send me stuff in my DMs all the time. What do you think about this? This is weird. This isn't what you te- this isn't what you teach all this stuff. And I'm like, "Well, you know, you you kind of have to teach them to navigate it." So I think like part of coaching and creating coaching feel is like if I had to have this player take a test and produce the best swing possible, right? That works, the most productive swing possible. Like, am I educating them enough to be able to go and do that? Because they can't take me in the box with them. So I think the education process of the player becomes, you know, super integral to their development. Because like, if, if I'm teaching them one thing, I need them to understand why. Because if they don't understand why, and then they, uh, somebody else grills them on it, because they will, right? They'll grill them on it. Are they going to be able to, to like, have the, the information at their disposal to say, this is why I do this. And this is why I need to do it. And be able to hold their own because I think that's, especially when you're coaching at the youth level, like that's one of the biggest problems we face is, you know, we're dealing with players who are still coming of age in their confidence and they're coming of age as players. And when an older adult questions them and they don't really understand it, what are they going to do? They're automatically just going to go into, okay, well, I need to do what that coach is telling me because I need to appease them. I want, I want to look good in front of that coach. I want to like appease that coach. We have to give them the tools to be like, I'm not trying to appease you. I'm trying to produce, but here's how I'm going to do it. So I think we have to educate the players as well. Yeah. 
I'm going to turn this. This is an elite podcast, so I always keep any Cub stuff off of it. Um, so I'm going to talk about career just a minute. And I remember, and I, again, I, I was, I think, consulting for several different teams at this point, but the Cubs guys were in, their hitting coordinator was in. This was probably three years ago, two or three years ago. And I was showing them a demo on the force plate, I believe, or we might even been testing a player. And you were there to help that day. And I said, this is Rachel to their hitting coordinator. I said, she'll be the first woman female hitting coach in um, professional baseball. And I wasn't lying. I was like, I, you know, I, I believed heavily in, in what your capability was. And, and from a personal, like just the way you handle yourself, I knew you'd be able to handle the situation. That isn't always going to be e easy at the start. Um, but I'm going to swing that to asking you to interview for a job. And I, I didn't give you much information. I said, you're going to interview with the president and the GM. I said, this, this is going to be different than what a lot of uh, like hitting coaches have to interview for, for the fact that, you know, this is something breakthrough and everybody wants to make sure that you can handle this. And I didn't give you any more information than that. Other than you said, well, what do I wear? I said, wear a suit. And that was it. And I purposely did that because I knew if you just were you, you'd be able to handle it. But I don't know if you've talked about this on any other podcast. I know it had to been kind of a butterflies moment for you as well, but um, obviously you crushed it, but you want, you want to speak on that at all? Yeah. So um, I remember when you told me, so I knew you were interviewing with different clubs and I didn't know how that process had turned out. And we were headed up to university of Michigan to do a consulting project. So we're driving up there on our little like four and a half hour road trip, however long it takes to get to Ann Arbor. And I was like, did you get a job yet? And you're like, Oh yeah, I got hired by the Cubs. And I was like, Oh, congrats. And he goes, yeah, I want you to work with me. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like what capacity? He goes hitting coach. And I'm like, yeah, we could do that. And that was it. That was like the, the conversation. And so I was like, so what do, what do we got to do? And he's like, well, there's an interview process. And he's like, so we'll start with like, you know, the, the, the written stuff, right. You emailed a bunch of stuff. I'd analyze some video. Like he goes, and I'm not worried about that. You'll crush that. And I'm like, okay. You also didn't tell me how anything that was coming down the pipe, you just sent it the same way you sent it to everybody else. And so, you know, there's a lot of stuff on there that like, I had no idea what the hell it was. I said, I have no idea what the hell this is, typed it, send it, and we were good to go. So I, I apparently passed that part of the interview. And then he's like, all right, well, you got to interview with like, you know, come to the, the stadium. So I passed the first round of interviews, come to the stadium and you got to interview with like, there's a couple of people that want to meet you. And it's like research and development, senior director of player development, um, you know, all these like stuff. And I'm like, Oh, cool. Like I get to actually like talk to some people that are in the business. So got dressed, went there for my interview. So I'm on there and I interviewed with, you know, the senior director of player development, director of player development and R and D. And I was like, this is going well. Like I'm having conversations with these guys. We're asking questions. We're actually like diving into stuff, which is really cool. And then, uh, they're like, Hey, you know, one of them, comes over to me and he's like, Hey, uh, you know, Jason McLeod wants to meet with you. He's like the senior vice president at this point. And I'm like, okay. And so he's got like the corner office with the big window. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is getting real now. And he did not intend to meet with me that day. He just saw me in there and was like, yeah, I kind of want to talk to her. Okay. So I just went in there. We had nothing scripted. He had nothing planned. He just wanted to have a conversation with me. So I was like, okay, just had a conversation with him done, went home. And I was like, all right, that's cool. So then you call me and you're like, Hey, you got to meet with Theo and Jed. And I was like, okay, this is a little next level. Now I'm in the penthouse suite. I'm not just like at the ground floor anymore. And I'm like, all right, well, like, what do I do? And he's like, just be yourself. You'll be fine. I'm like, okay. So I go and I'm like, I don't think you understand like the, 
the amount of pumped up that I was on the walk from the green lot that we have to park at to the stadium where the entrance is. And I'm like, I'm like sitting there and I'm like, okay, like, let's go. Like I'm getting fired up. Right. And, um, and I'm in my suit and I'm feeling like sexy as hell. Cause I got my suit on and I'm like, all right, like, let's go. Right. Let's, let's, let's just go meet with Theo and Jed. And like, they could not be the most, they could not be more regular guys. First of all, they're just like regular guys who are like really good at their jobs. And so I just ended up having a conversation with them that lasted probably way longer than they intended it to, which was awesome. And I was like, so I got out into the car and I remember getting to my car and I got in and I called my mom and I was like, holy shit, I just met with Theo and Jed. And my mom's like, who's that? And I'm like, okay, like wrong person to call. I probably should have called dad first, but like, so I, you know, and she's like, who's that? And I'm like, they're, they're like, they're not the owners of the Cubs, but they're like right there, like right underneath. And she's like, oh my God, that's so cool. So I was like talking and I was, I just remember thinking like, holy shit, I can't believe I got to do that. It was just like one of the coolest experiences ever. And then, um, you know, it was just like, I remember when you told me I got the job and I cried and it was just like, it was just a cool moment for me. So yeah, the, the experience of like, I'm like, I don't think other hitting coaches that are going to coach rookie ball get this experience, but I'm here for it. And like, let's do it. So it was fun. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a cool story. I know that's uh, it's well-deserved, but I, to me, you know, there is no aspect other than being a human that matters to me. If you care about your players and you can, and you can find a way to get them better. So that was like no concern of, of mine and any job that anybody should be able to do. So yeah, I'm excited. I, I get to continue to work with you in two capacities now and over at the yeah. shop. Uh, and then also in our, our professional life. So that's cool. Yep. Um, that's all I got today. That was, that was a great show, Rachel. Awesome guest to have on. You filled in Travis's shoes very, very well. <laughs> Probably can't drink as much whiskey as him, but. I don't want to try. <laughs> I don't. Like, yeah, I've been out with you guys. I can't keep up with you, but it's fine. I don't try. Impossible. My approach, my approach matches my mechanics. Okay. I know what, <laughs> I know what I can handle and that's my approach. And once I get there, I'm like, no, you guys have fun. Pro. You're a true pro. Yeah, true pro. Like, I can't, I understand it. It's funny because Travis is into whiskey now. So, like, now him and I have, like, a common ground. But, like, he just drinks a lot more of it than I do. So, you know, it's just, I can't, I can't keep up with you guys. So, I'll try. Oh, that's good. So, uh, look for Rachel's Elite, and that segue from whiskey to Elite TV <laughs> Coming to pretty soon here in January. But to also check out our podcast, Producer Dan Puts Out. We are on Apple iTunes as well as Spotify. Until next time, see you on the field. Thanks, Rachel.